Hello, and welcome back to the Finding Justice podcast. This is episode three, and it's honestly quite an interesting one. I want to give you a trigger warning now that this case does involve sexual assault and some graphic details from the crime scene. So if that's not okay with you, please go ahead and just skip this one. I'm sure you've heard of the movie Scream, but did you know it was inspired by one of the most horrific cases Florida has ever seen? I'm talking about the Gainesville Ripper. Sonia Larson and Christina Powell, or Christy as her friends and family called her, were new students at the University of Florida in 1990. Everyone said that the two of them were excited to start this college life and to just start this new chapter. They had met each other during summer while taking some extracurricular courses and decided to be roommates. They hit it off and became really great friends, and so they decided that it just made a lot of sense to be roommates. They ended up having to settle for an apartment off campus in a complex called Williamsburg Apartments. The reason for this was because all the dorms were full and there really was no other option for them. The apartment was about two blocks away from the university, so it wasn't too far, but their parents would have been a lot more comfortable if it was in the dorms. Now, They started setting up their apartment on August 25th, and you can imagine their excitement being able to decorate and planning out their get-togethers with friends and just really enjoying each other's company. Christy's parents were supposed to come over the next day with her stuff and help the girls unpack and get settled in, you know, the thing that parents do with their kids when they go off to college. The girls kind of wind down for the night and settle off for bed. Around 3 a.m., They are woken up by someone breaking into their apartment with a screwdriver and carrying a military knife with him. He went into Sonia's room first, taped her mouth shut, assaulted her, and then stabbed her repeatedly. He then went to Christy's room and did the same to her. Now in the morning, Christy's parents got there and knocked on the door, but when they didn't get a response, after some time, they asked a maintenance worker at the apartment complex for help. Christy's car was still in the parking lot, so of course she was there, and it wasn't like her to kind of blow this off. I mean, she was expecting them, so her not answering was kind of weird and off for them. So the maintenance worker, he contacted the police at the request of his manager because they didn't really want him to go in there by himself, just in case. And when they arrived, the maintenance worker, apartment manager, and the police officer all went over to Sonia and Christy's apartment. The maintenance worker ends up going into the apartment with the police and to put into perspective about how gruesome the scene was, the second he had seen Christy's body, he ran out of the apartment, down the stairs, and past Christy's parents screaming, oh God, and threw up. They found Christy on the first floor and Sonia's body was on the second floor in her room, naked, with her back on her bed and feet on the floor and her hand her hair was fanned out the investigators discovered one of the girls had soap on her body and the duct tape was removed from both of the girls so there was a residue that the tape left behind that's how they knew that they were taped up they believed it had to have been an effort to get rid of dna evidence and fingerprints now not even 
Eight hours later, the sheriff's department was hit close to home when they discovered a student who had been working with them didn't show up for her shift. And that was supposed to be the night of the 26th. Now, her name is Krista Hoyt. She was an inspiring police officer, and that's why she was working with the Achula County Sheriff's Office. They ended up dispatching two officers to her home to check on her, and what they found were just as bad as the last crime scene, if not worse. Gail Barber is the first officer on the scene, and they find Krista in her room, sexually assaulted, stabbed, and beheaded. They had seen her head sitting on a bookshelf right as you walk into her room. Her body was posed like Sonia's with her feet on the floor and her torso was slumped forward. Evidence shows that she put up a fight and she fought hard, but it also shows that she was kept alive for several hours while restrained. Her parents had a hard time processing what happened and her dad sat and just said, please tell me she died right away and didn't suffer. So the officers told him that she died right away from the first stab, which was true, but they also just didn't tell them the many hours before that. While all of this is happening, there is a robbery that was also taking place. I know, how convenient, but I promise this is relevant. The bank teller cooperates, but also sneaks a red dye packet into the bag. That way, when the robber leaves, the dye packet will explode and get dye all over the money, making it unusable. Once word starts spreading around that the murderers and now this robbery, the parents of some students start to bring them back home to continue their studies there, which is understandable because I would be doing the exact same thing. The sheriff's department ups their patrol. In the evening of the robbery, one of the deputies sees a guy running through the wooded area, which is weird. So he tries to follow the guy, but he loses them. But he does find a tent with a bag of dye all over it. So it's assumed that this is the guy who robbed the bank and he's camping out in the area. He also finds a gun, a screwdriver, and an audio cassette tape. So they bag everything up and put it into evidence without really thinking too much of it. I mean, they do have a whole bunch of stuff going on at the same time. I can only imagine how chaotic everything is for them. But this kind of ends up being a horrible mistake. On August 28th, students wake up to more news of two more of their classmates being murdered. It's like a never-ending thing for them. And these students were Manny Taboda and Tracy Paulez. Now, these two were good friends from high school, and they just started living together. And I'm pretty sure Tracy had moved in, like, maybe the day before. So it hadn't been too long. Manny wanted to be an architect, and Tracy was working towards being a lawyer. So obviously, they had, like, these high hopes and dreams of what they wanted to do with their life, and they were working towards that. Now, Manny was a bigger guy. He was a football player in high school, so Tracy's family had a sense of comfort in that, and I'm sure Tracy did too, considering that this suspect was only going after females. So, authorities believe that Manny was the first to be attacked after the killer broke into the home, and that they had fought for some time before Manny was stabbed to death, 
and it's assumed that Tracy must have heard the commotion and came down to figure out what was going on because they had found Tracy on their living room floor posed in the same way as the others with soap on her lower body and tape residue on her wrist and mouth. There's evidence that whoever the killer was stayed in the homes for hours on end and treated it like their own. Now, the murders sparked national attention because they were so gruesome and they were in three days. And I mean, three days for five murders, that's terrifying. Investigators noted similarities in all three of the cases. The killer entered the rooms through the back doors and each home was near a wooded area so that they could leave without being noticed. So... Remember that campsite I told you about? Yeah, there's your connection. Police grew convinced that Ed Humphrey was their suspect after his name kept being brought up through the tip line. He suffered from mental illness and would often go off of his medication and it would trigger manic episodes. And a lot of people found him intimidating because of the scars he had on his face from a car accident he was in. And these aren't just like little scars, they're deep scars and you can see a photo of him up on my instagram um, and you can check it out and kind of see for yourself now he was reported seeing walking by the wooded area and multiple people had said that he had stopped and said he was working on himself and kind of things like that now everyone became more and more convinced that it was him because he did get arrested but not for the killings he had attacked his grandma in the middle of the night during one of his manic episodes and since he was in jail the killing stopped but the only thing that kind of drives a wedge in this entire theory is the suspect has type b blood and they know that because of the evidence that was left behind And Ed has type A blood, but they keep him in jail as they keep investigating just because they want to make sure that there's nothing that ties him to it or they're trying to see if they can possibly find anything that ties him to it. Now, they get another lead when a Winn-Dixie store was robbed in Alcala, Florida, and this robber had gotten away, but he ends up being caught shortly after. Now, his name is Danny Rowling. Danny was born on May 26th of 1954 in Cheverport, Louisiana. He was the oldest of two boys, and his father abused him and his brother along with his mother. Now, I'm not going to get into details about what his mother had gone through because it's, it's really gruesome. But his dad had held a knife up to Danny's throat often and would tell him that he was never really wanted. Now, neighbors have seen the abuse, and all in all, his dad just was not a good guy. So, of course, Danny leaves the house as soon as he turns 17, and he joins the Air Force. And he stays in for about two years, and after that, he takes a complete turn, and he commits a bunch of robberies. So, he basically bounces in and out of jail. Now, he enjoyed singing and songwriting, and he would tell his jailmates that he never really wanted to just be a life of crime, and he wanted to be a musician. So he would record songs on a tape recorder. After one of his prison sentences, he moves back in with his parents. 
great idea. While he's home, he gets into this argument with his father who chases Danny out of the house with a gun. And Danny ends up running to his car and grabs his own gun, walks back into his house, and shoots his father straight in between the eyes. And this man survives. Now, he's left without an eye and an ear, but he survives. Danny fled the scene and ends up in Florida where he is arrested. And everyone who interviewed him couldn't get a good reading on him to tell if he was actually being sincere or it was an act or if there was something mentally wrong. And they basically described him like a child who had gotten caught doing something wrong and was super bashful about it. He went through a psychic evaluation and... While he was doing that, he asked the doctor if it was confidential. And when the doctor says yes, Danny confesses to all of the murders that had happened. He even told him information that the investigators didn't know. He had said that when he killed Krista, he had left the scene and realized he had left his wallet behind, went back and got it, and then that's when he decided to decapitate her. Yeah. The doctor can't tell anyone this because patient and doctor confidentiality, but I don't, I feel like they should be allowed to say something if someone is telling you they murdered five people while they have someone else in jail trying to figure out if he actually did it or not. It's just, oh man, there's got to be a way around that. While all of this is happening, the investigators decide to use a program called VICAP, and basically it takes the details of the crime scene and tries to match it with other crime scenes that are identical. So you just input details, and then it will pull up all the other details for other areas and see if you can get a match, in which it does because the 1989 murder of the Grissom family popped up, which happened October 6th of 1989 in, you guessed it, Shreveport, Louisiana. It was an unsolved case of a 55-year-old man named William Grissom, his daughter Julie, and his grandson John. And they were all found in William's home, believed to have been there for two days prior to being found, and what brought this case up through VicCap was the positioning of Julie's body. It is very similar to the Gainesville murders, specifically Sonia Larson's, with the hair fanned out and everything. Also, a knife was thought to be used at the Grissom's murder, and they were also bound with duct tape, but it was removed from the scene. And there was DNA left at the scene because Julie was bitten, and when they used that to compare the DNA left to the Gainesville, it would show that both suspects were type B. A woman named Cindy was watching the news because, remember, this is widely publicized. And she and her husband both looked at each other and they immediately believed that Danny had done it. Now, they had known Danny from church and Cindy's husband got weird vibes from Danny, but Cindy told him, no, he was just a weird guy and he just needs friends. It's no big deal. So they spent quite a bit of time with him and he hung out with them almost every night and one night he was talking to Cindy's husband and told him that he enjoyed sticking knives in people yeah hello red flag so after Sydney's husband shares this information with her she agrees that he's not a good person which I would really hope so so 
they distance themselves from him and she ends up calling the tip line and gives them Danny's name. So the police look up warrants and sure enough, Danny's name comes up for the attempted murder of his father and the dots start to line up and finally they pull out the evidence that they had found by the tent from the bank robbery and when they listen to the tape, they hear a man singing and then there would be breaks and he would talk about weird, creepy things. He'd talk about killing animals and like the best place to stab them And at one point, he identifies himself using his full name, saying, it's Danny Rowling. That's when they learn he served in the military. So they pull his blood type, and what do you know? He's type B. They send Danny back to Gainesville, and they charge him with the five murders. He initially pleads not guilty, but then soon after, he pleads guilty, but says he can't be held responsible because he had multiple personalities. He says he has himself Danny, another personality named Yandi, and another one named Gemini. He said Gemini is the evil one who makes him do gruesome things, and he wants to admit to what Gemini made him do, but doesn't want to verbally say it. So he has his jail buddies tell the story for him, which the police allow. So his jail buddy that ends up relaying this information, his name is Bobby Lewis, and he was pretty known because he had escaped the jail and was on death row. So, I mean, he was widely known because that's not a thing. So they're doing this interview in a room full of detectives, and the detective would look at Danny and ask a question in which Danny would lean over, whisper the answer to Bobby, who would then relay the answer to the detectives. So it's basically like a game of telephone if you will. Then they would look at Danny and ask if it was correct, and he would just shake his head yes or no. And they suspect that he's also the person who killed the Grissom family, but when they try to press on that, the interview gets shut down, and Danny basically just says, we'll talk about that later. So when it is time for him to formally confess and say, like, yeah, I did these, I'm confessing and pleading guilty... Danny decides he's not going to do that because technically he didn't confess to anything, which technically it's true. Bobby was just the mouthpiece and nothing actually came out of Danny's mouth that the detectives could hear. So you can kind of imagine the annoyance that the detectives had at this point. But at this time, they're working on matching the DNA to Danny, not just the blood type. So the confession doesn't matter at this point. But since it's the early 90s, it's a little bit of a slower process to get that back. But once it finally does come back, it proves that Danny was the killer. Now, remember, Ed is still in jail at this point, And I'm pretty sure this is like 10, maybe 11 months later. So, yeah, I know. But they wanted to make sure he wasn't a co-conspirator. But this DNA ends up proving once and for all that he was innocent and he was released. Now, the trial goes forward four years after the murders, and I'm not really sure why it took so long, but it's February 1994 when they begin the jury selection, and all of the family members of the victims are in court, because they of course want justice and to see the outcome. Anne walks Danny, and no one really knows how he's going to act, but he asks to address the court, so the judge allows it, and he says he's been running from things his entire life, 
but there comes a point where you just can't run from something anymore. He goes on to say that this situation is one of those things that you can't run from, and he confesses right there to all five of the murders. Now, the prosecution is looking for the death penalty, so even though he confessed, all the evidence has to be presented to a jury, and it has to go through a trial before a death penalty can be sentenced, because they have to prove that the crime was so horrible that he deserves to die for it. Unfortunately for the families, though, this is where they learn the gruesome details of the cases. So they learn that they didn't die a quick death, and it was terrifying and horrible, and they begged and pleaded for their lives. And the defense tried to use the abusive father card and the multiple personalities, but that didn't work because... It was proven that Danny went to a movie weeks before the murder, and the movie he went to was The Exorcist 3. And the guy in the movie that does all the messed up stuff talks to a psychologist and says it's not really him doing it. It's a demon that's possessing him, and the demon's name is... Anyone want to take a random guess? Well, if you guess Gemini, you're right. So the other personality that Danny had named was Yanid, and which backwards is Danny. So yeah, nice try there. And he eventually ends up with the death penalty, and hours before his execution, he confesses to the risk of murders in a letter, which is kind of like a big fuck you to everyone because of the fact that he can't be tried for that. He's already dying. He can't be charged for it, and the that family can't hear the court saying that he's guilty, and it's just he confessed, and he's dying. So on October 25th of 2006, he was executed with lethal injection, and he used his final words to sing. So, yeah, that's the messed up case of what inspired the Scream movies. So, the most traumatizing case that happened in Florida. There you have it. I, don't, I really don't know what else to say. This entire case was just a roller coaster when I was researching it. So, definitely glad this one's over. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Finding Justice. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave a review. It really helps me out. And feel free to follow us over on Instagram at Finding Justice Podcast. Now stay tuned for the following Tuesday. So not this upcoming Tuesday, but the Tuesday after. We are going to go over the case called Little Red Riding Hood. And it's quite an interesting one. So... Stay tuned for that. And I hope everyone has a happy and safe Halloween.